Welcome to Health Trust Candid Conversations. This is a conversation series where we highlight physicians, clinicians, and supply chain leaders who are innovating, caring for those in need, and working to improve human life. In this conversation, I talked to Dr. Michelle Fiscus, the Medical Director of the Vaccine Preventable Diseases and Immunization Program at the Tennessee Department of Health. Dr. Fiscus is leading the state's deployment of COVID-19 vaccines and shares her deep insight into distribution, vaccine hesitancy, and the role we all play in public health. In today's conversation with Dr. Fiscus, we look at Tennessee's unique preparation for the distribution of over half a million COVID-19 vaccinations. We discuss vaccine hesitancy and what is upcoming surrounding COVID-19 vaccines. I hope you enjoy this timely conversation as much as I did. Good morning. Today we have Dr. Michelle Fiscus here with us. She serves as the medical director of the Tennessee Vaccine Preventable Disease and Immunization Program at the Tennessee Department of Health. Welcome, Dr. Fiscus. Good morning. Good morning. Do you mind just starting out? Tell me a little bit more about your role and your background. Sure. So uh, I'm a pediatrician by training and was actually in private practice in uh, Franklin, Tennessee for about 17 years. I owned my my own little practice with one partner there and just really honestly burned out uh, in being in small private practice medicine. And and I've been pretty um, open and transparent about that process and um, just really didn't know what I was going to do after that. Um, One of the things that really burned me out was um, dealing with vaccine hesitancy or, or frank uh, anti-vaccine folks in Williamson County, which uh, is sort of a hotbed for that. And uh, I, I knew that it just wouldn't be a good fit for me to work for an insurance company or work for a pharmaceutical company. And, and I wasn't really sure what was going to happen. And um, I got an email one day saying that there was uh, an open position at the Tennessee Department of Health working in the maternal child health office there. And so I uh, I applied, and um, actually because of the experience that I've had with the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Tennessee chapter of the AAP, I, I think I had enough leadership experience outside of just practice to um, qualify me for that position. And so I came to that in 2016 and spent two years working on tobacco prevention and cancer prevention and chronic disease prevention and in the mortality programs and, and others um, at the department. And then um, had an opportunity two years ago to come and take over as the medical director of the Vaccine Preventable Diseases and Immunizations Program here. And that's that's really where a lot of my passion is. So it's it's kind of ironic that the thing that uh, helped to drive me out of practice was was vaccine hesitancy and and anti-vaccine um, rhetoric. And and now my full-time job is to uh, deal with that on a full-time basis at the state level. So I did not, however, see uh, a pandemic coming. And uh, and this pandemic is now a vaccine preventable disease. So the um, the allocation and distribution and uptake of that vaccine lies squarely in this program now. So um, there's been a, a pretty dynamic shift of priorities over the last uh, oh, you know, six months or so as we've prepared for this. Wow, you really chose a great time to leave a private practice and go to the Tennessee Health Department. I mean, who would have known <laughs> where we were at now, or at least I guess starting last March. 
what a yeah, role so much you for would that, play. So much for that Cush <laughs> government job. <laughs> right. Uh, you're, you guys are working harder than probably just about anyone or at least equally as the, as the front lines. And we so appreciate it. I think that many don't realize the part that the health department has played in this and how hard these teams have been working, which actually, you know, can you help us understand a little bit about what really is, what does your team exactly do? And what is the role of your team in the big picture of the pandemic? Yeah, we chipped in um, early on before this was technically a vaccine preventable disease. So, you know, really since January, um, when we started realizing that we were going to have a problem here. And then March, uh, when we identified our first case in Tennessee, which was March the 5th, many parts of our team have chipped in to assist, whether that's with um, helping with contact tracing or getting data into the case database or helping with testing in some way. Or um, you know, I was helping the Department of Education and the schools deal with COVID-19 in, um, in their schools and how to, how to quarantine and isolate and mitigate all of that. And so we, you know, we were involved in the bigger COVID-19 response all from March through the summer. And then, you know, as we saw that we were going to get vaccines imminently, we really started ramping up, you know, really beginning in the spring to start reaching out to um, different providers in the state, whether they were hospitals or private practices or pharmacies or clinics, to say, hey, can you be a COVID-19 vaccine provider when that time comes? And so, as you can imagine, that onboarding process is a big, you know, elephant to consume. So, we've we've got about 2,000 different places in the state that would like to get vaccine. Not all of them are able to handle the vaccine. And, you know, with some of the vaccines, like the Pfizer vaccine, for example, we have storage and handling challenges because that one has to be kept in dry ice. And many of the the vaccines have very short shelf lives if they're not kept under um, frozen conditions. And so we've been working really hard to to get those providers on board and trained up so that they can get the vaccine and, and administer the vaccine properly. And then our partners in the community health services office here that actually run the local health departments and our metro health department partners have been working to, you know, figure out how they were going to stand up mass vaccination clinics and um, track all of this. And then we have now entered into this very, very complex process of getting federal allocations of vaccines and then needing to figure out how to equitably distribute those across the state in ways that, um, you know, we're sure that everyone who qualifies as a priority population can get those vaccines. And that turns out to be a really cumbersome process, that whole, um, you know, allocating, ordering, shipping, receiving, inventory management process. And then our office also runs TENIS, the Tennessee Immunization Information System, or the vaccine registry. So that plays a huge part in all of this and making sure that we're capturing all of these administered doses of vaccines um, so that we can report and also so that if there is you know, any kind of adverse event, we can 
quickly identify lot numbers and uh, and when individuals receive vaccines. So it's a pretty um, big project. Um, we're, we, we run the Vaccines for Children program as well, and so we're used to managing vaccines. We manage about 2 million doses of vaccines every year just through that program and our partners in that program. But this is obviously you know, a, new, a whole new different scale and, and timeline and sense of urgency than, than you know, even what we're used to, to dealing with on a daily basis. Absolutely. So, you know, kind of switching over to actually receiving the vaccine, there seems to be two camps. There seems to be those that are on the website every day trying to get signed up, trying to find a place to to get the vaccine. And then there's those that seem to be very hesitant and sometimes very vocal about that hesitancy. Has that been a hot topic with your team that you all have been trying to remove? And how are you encouraging more people to get the vaccine and that it's safe. Yeah, we we um, we manage both of these topics. I think almost exclusively every day. How can we get more vaccines out faster to the people who want to receive them? And then how do we get folks who are on the fence um, to to understand the importance of this? And you know, I, I think the very small percentage of people, you know, nationally, probably three to five percent of people who are just staunch anti-vaccine folks. I mean, we we are not going to to get those folks to to appreciate the importance of this or any other vaccine. So we frankly don't have the a lot of time and energy to spend um, on on that population. I don't think there's much we could say to change their minds. But the vaccine hesitancy is is very different from anti-vax kind of, you know, propaganda and rhetoric. And those folks, you know, there's a spectrum, people who are you know, accepting but questioning versus people who are not accepting and questioning. And and so, so much of it ties to education. It, it always ties back to education and communication. And when there's not adequate communication, then then folks make up their own stories and, um, and mistruth and disinformation uh, gets to kind of take over the, the conversation. So, we try really hard to to push out messaging to the best that we can, but really, what we need are champions on on the local um, level and, and in communities that look, you know, people who look like the communities that they're speaking to, to give testimonies and to be able to speak about the importance of these vaccines. And so we've really worked on developing those relationships, identifying people who can carry that message to different populations and. You know, and, and it's very important to acknowledge where some of this vaccine hesitancy comes from. And, you know, I think most people know about things like Tuskegee, um, where, you know, African-American men uh, were not told that they were infected with syphilis and, and were not given treatment for syphilis because they wanted uh, the scientists wanted to study them. And, and, you know, people died because of that. So that um, mistrust of medicine in general, organized medicine, um, the government is is there and very real still, and it's very important to acknowledge that you know that happened. These these people, these communities were wronged, and it takes a really long time to build that trust back. And you know, with COVID nineteen, there's some urgency to do that because our African-American and Hispanic residents are also disproportionately impacted by the disease itself. They're dying more, they're hospitalized more, 
And so not only are they more likely to get sick and die from COVID-19, but they're less likely to get the vaccine for COVID-19. And that's a really bad juxtaposition of, of positions. Right. And so, um, you know, we, we feel some urgency to to be able to get information there and work with our partners on the ground in these communities to, to get that message out so that we can help um, folks protect themselves and, and not end up as one of these terrible statistics. Right, absolutely. You know, are there any populations where vaccines would not be recommended? For COVID-19 vaccine, um, you know, really the only contraindication to this vaccine is age. If you're under the age of 18, you can't get the Moderna vaccine. If you're under the age of 16, as of right now, you can't get the Pfizer vaccine. And then people who have, um, you know, known allergies to components of of these vaccines. And other than that, um, unless people are acutely ill with COVID-19, there are really no other contraindications as of, as of now. And these vaccines have been given now, I think we're up to nationally something like 40 million individuals where there just have not been loud signals of alarm that, um, that bad things are happening from these vaccines. And so we, you know, we strongly encourage people to consider getting a vaccine when it's their time to be able to get one. And unfortunately, because of the limitations with the federal supply right now, um, we do have to prioritize those populations. One of the bright spots for us is that the, the 75 and up and the 70 and up population, man, they know that vaccines are important um, and uptake right. in that population is really great. And, you know, they've lived through polio. Many of these folks were military and our military members are, are what I tend to call hyper-vaccinated. They get vaccines for absolutely everything and, and things that none of us get vaccinated for. Um, and they understand that, you know, this is really, really important to get these vaccines. And they also understand that they're incredibly high risk of dying if they get COVID-19. So, you know, as of uh, last night, almost half of the people in Tennessee who've been vaccinated are over the age of 70, which is really cool um, that, you know, we've got half a million doses that have gone into the arms of people who are over 70. We hope that they're going to kind of lead the way and help the younger generations also understand the importance of this. And even though young people are less likely to be hospitalized and die from COVID-19, it, it does still happen. And uh, and it doesn't have to because we have really, really effective vaccines. So if we really want to help with this effort, you know, help us create a couple talking points on why the vaccine is safe and why people should get the vaccine. So these vaccines were tested in tens of thousands of people. And and I'm talking about all of the vaccines. So the, the Pfizer, the Moderna, AstraZeneca, the um, Novavax, and the J&J, the Johnson Johnson vaccines that are that are all sort of in the American pipeline. They were cumulatively tested in, in tens of thousands of people. And through those studies, there was not one death or one hospitalization from COVID-19 in the vaccinated populations in those studies, which is truly remarkable. I, I, mean, I don't think... I don't think we've ever had data like that on mm -hmm. vaccine trials before. So, you know, these vaccines were 100% effective in preventing hospitalization and death from COVID-19 in in the tens of thousands of people that were in the in the clinical trials. So, I think that's one really important talking point. Absolutely. Um, 
in Tennessee, I think you know we're we're coming close to eleven thousand deaths right now, which puts our death rate at something like one in six hundred and eighty Tennesseans, which is a pretty shocking number that one in six hundred and eighty people who live in Tennessee has died from COVID-19. We're going to be up to a million doses of vaccines administered probably by the first part of next week. And we have not had a, a death associated with vaccine you know, that we're aware of in those million doses. So even if we identified one, that's one in a million versus 101 in 680 who have contracted COVID-19 and died from it. So the, statistically, the vaccines are are much, much safer than being a resident of Tennessee right now. And, you know, your chance of getting COVID and dying is one in 680. Your chance of getting a vaccine and having a serious adverse event from it is probably less than about one in a million. And we'll continue to get more and more data about that. And then I think you know, this this is a virus that isn't going to go away. I think it's made itself pretty clear that it's going to live with us similarly to how H1N1 has been with us since 2009. And the choice is probably going to be get this illness or get this vaccine. And we really still don't know what the long-term impact is of getting the illness, even in people who experience mild symptoms of COVID-19 or who are asymptomatic we're not getting echocardiograms and troponin levels on every one of those people to see if they sustain any kind of heart damage or lung damage um, from that infection. And we also know that the natural antibody is not long lasting. And so we are beginning to see people who have had COVID-19 more than once or who might get one strain and then get one of the variants. Whereas the the vaccine at least seems to confer a pretty good immunity against getting that and, you know, potentially against getting infected at all, potentially against being able to spread that virus to others. So there's there's not a lot of downsides to opting to get the vaccine. And I, I just think that's really important. I think the medical community needs to be out in front on this and say, you know, they were the first ones to get vaccines in the state. It's been a couple of months now since uh, a lot of them were vaccinated. And the more that they can speak to their experience, to their trust in vaccines, to the importance of this, um, I think those messages to you know our patients and our colleagues and you know even to the, the nurses and others who, who work with us who might be hesitant about getting the vaccine, I think all of that's really, really important. You know, kind of... Switching over to some of the things you mentioned about the success that Tennessee has had, even though I'm sure we would want to vaccinate faster if we could and have more supply if we could, Tennessee has done a great job about distributing the vaccines. Can you kind of tell us why has Tennessee been so successful at administering the vaccines? What is that best practice? You know, we were um, one of the we were we were ranked in the top five states in the country for getting vaccine out the fastest, and I really credit that to our emergency preparedness program here at the Department of Health. They actually exercise every year through an event called Fight Flu TN, 
doing mass vaccination pods. So so being able to set up on the fly sites and, and knowing how to, you know, how do you do that logistically? How do you run the traffic? Who needs to be there? What kind of staff do you need? What are the supplies that you need? And And they've been exercising this with our local health departments for three years. And they use that exercise to administer flu shots every year, um, which is awesome. They usually administer about somewhere between six and 9,000 flu vaccines in a, in a day. And some of those pods, the, these points of dispensing that, that are set up, they might be in an aisle in a grocery store or in the parking lot of a Dollar General or at a health department. They're, they're all over the state. A couple of years ago, they set up more than 200 different sites all on the same day to give flu shots. And and over time, you develop some muscle memory from that. So I think a lot of states, actually, we're, we're the only state that we know of that does that. And so, and, and we'd heard that from Vice President Pence this year. We heard that from Dr. Redfield at CDC that they had not heard of other states actually standing up mass vaccination sites every year to, to practice this. And so when we got vaccine in the state, we had pods up within you know just a couple of days all across the state through our local health departments that already knew how to do all this. And so there, there was no learning curve except for just the handling of the vaccine itself. And that I, I just think that gave us a huge advantage. We have an incredibly dedicated staff of public health workers, and they they will work weekends and holidays. They will work in the rain and snow and in the sweltering temperatures. They've they have proven that over the last year with not just testing and contact tracing, but with now now with, with vaccinations. And they're just incredibly dedicated people, and you know a large amount of that credit goes to them. And then. We had some very good hospital partners right out of the gate that were able to vaccinate their own. They were ready to go. They had already thought about how they were going to vaccinate their healthcare workers. And now that they've kind of built those machines, they're continuing to to receive vaccines to help vaccinate the public too, which is, has been um, really, really helpful. I think the, the hard part and the frustrating thing for us is that it's really difficult to compare states and what one state is doing that works well for them may not work well in another state. And so some states have had very large metropolitan mass vaccination centers, and they've sort of you know, funneled their, their allocation of vaccines to those sites. And that's great, and that serves their needs. But we have a very, very rural state, which means we have to get vaccines into 95 counties and and lots of zip codes within those 95 counties to make sure that we can reach folks. And in some ways, doing that slows our ability to, um, you know, to get vaccines out because we can't just line up lines and lines of cars in Nashville and feel good that we've reached the people that we need to reach. So it is a, uh, a really complex process of identifying those partners and, and allocating those vaccines in an equitable way. But I'm I'm really really proud of the work that we've done, and you know we're at, we're at just about a million doses, and uh, and we've had vaccines for not quite eight weeks, and so we're we're pretty proud That's of incredible. the work that we've done. You should be. That's absolutely incredible. Really, almost a miracle. I, I have no idea besides just working day and night how you all done that. I have had questions because I'm a I am a nurse. I've had people ask several times, why can't they just send these vaccines to my physician's office or my physician office or 
somewhere closer to me. You know, I, I understand this distribution process is much more complex from some of the things you said earlier in the podcast, you know, how it's stored, how it has to be distributed. Can you tell us a little more about that? Why can't it just be shipped to local physician offices? Yeah, it, it really um, comes down to supply. So when we first got vaccine, so the vaccine first landed here December the 17th, and it was all Pfizer vaccine. And the Pfizer vaccine is the one that has to keep be kept either in an ultra cold freezer or it has to be kept in a special um, shipper with dry ice recharges every five days. That vaccine comes in an allocation of about a thousand doses and, and you can't get any less than that. And so you can't send a thousand doses of a vaccine that's going to expire in 30 days. At the time, we thought it was 14 days to a local physician and expect that they're going to be able to get those thousand doses administered within what was a 14-day period. So that vaccine really had to go to hospitals and um, you know very large health departments where we could feel confident that they were going to be able to get a thousand doses of vaccines administered within seven to 14 days or so. The, the next vaccine that we got was the Moderna vaccine. And it comes in quantities of 100, so it's a lot easier to get out to places, and you can just put it in a regular um, freezer or, or even in a refrigerator. But even at that, when we first got our allocations of Moderna vaccine, we only got about 100 boxes of it. So when you think about equitable distribution and all of the providers that we have across the state, you know, how do you choose which doctor's office gets one of the 100 boxes of, of vaccines and which one doesn't. And there's really no way to do that in a, in a way that's fair. And so the way that's fair is to send that to health departments where everybody has access. And in many cases, doctor's offices, you know, even if they wanted to, would have a really hard time opening up their ability to vaccinate the public. And so if they're only really able to vaccinate their patient base, and you have to be a patient of that practice to get that vaccine, and that vaccine is in a limited supply, and we can only send it to 100 locations, then that really creates inequity. And, um, you know, people who don't have access to health care or don't have transportation or aren't uh, even a, a registered patient in that practice then are locked out of that opportunity to get vaccinated. And that's just not something that you can do when you've got something that's in such limited supply. That makes complete sense and helps us all to understand how much more complex this is than just shipping something um, like an Amazon package to a physician's office or wherever, plus just keeping the documentation. You know, I don't know that most places are, are prepared for some of that. So that makes absolute sense. You know, what can you expect or what can we expect in the next 30, 60, 90 days? More vaccines approved, more availability. What, what does the next 30, 60, 90 days look like to you? Yeah, I think all of the above. So, um, you know, we we are beginning to see this this slow creep up of vaccine supply. As of this recording, uh, we still only have two vaccines: the the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. We do expect that we will probably have the Johnson and Johnson vaccine um, about the first of March. So, um, I guess we can play this back in a few weeks and see if if I'm right about that. And and that that vaccine is a one dose vaccine. 
And that has the potential to really kind of blow open the distribution. They've been manufacturing this vaccine for months longer than um, Pfizer and Moderna had before they began distributing their vaccines. And so there should be a pretty substantial stockpile of the J&J vaccine that hopefully we will be able to get out. And and then every vaccine in an arm of the J&J vaccine is in the arm of a new person, whereas with the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, we have to do everybody twice. So that should speed things up a great deal. And and so I do think over the next 30 days, we're going to start getting vaccines into uh, urgent visit centers and large medical practices and, you know, maybe even to some kind of medium-sized medical practices and, you know, over the course of March or so. And then we should also be able to open up some of the phases. So, you know, to get to 65 and older um, soon and, and then hopefully shortly to that 1C population that we really want to get to. So our 1C population is people who have a chronic health condition and, you know, they're at higher risk if, if they have diabetes, hypertension, um, you know, COPD, we really want to get those folks vaccinated. And, and I think when we get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that's going to be the opportunity to be able to do that. At the same time, on the federal level, they have started the federal pharmacy partnership. And that means that there have been federal allocations across the United States to pharmacy chains. In Tennessee, our pharmacy chain, the, the first one is Walmart. And as of next week, we'll have about 130 of their 150 Walmart and Sam stores in the state that uh, are able to vaccinate. And that's going to help tremendously. Wow. It's not, yeah, <laughs> it's not high throughput. Um, you know, they might only be able to do 30 or 40 or 50 doses a day, but 30, 40, 50 doses a day, seven days a week, over 100 and eventually 150 stores is, is a significant number of people. And so that will greatly expand access beyond what health departments have been able to do. And then hopefully we will begin onboarding um, new pharmacy chains, I hope, pretty quickly. So those federal allocations will hopefully then be going to the Walgreens chains and the CVS chains and Kroger and uh, Food City and all, all of those over time. There's about 19 federal pharmacy programs that um, are ready to launch. It's just a matter of getting enough vaccine produced to be able to support those efforts. So, um, so I'm very excited about that. We also have plans with the Tennessee Board of Regents who runs our Tennessee Colleges of Applied Technology and our community colleges to set up about 40 or so sites in um, in different counties across the state. Many of them are, most of them are rural counties to do um, drive-through vaccination at those um, college campuses. And those are going to be staffed by nursing students and pharmacy students and um, and you know staff from those colleges. They they very much want to participate in this process and help vaccinate Tennessee. Um, we're also working with our large four-year state-funded universities to do the same thing. And then um, we're in the planning stages for what our very high throughput, you know, thousands of doses a day kind of sites will look like and where those will be positioned um, when we finally get enough vaccine to be able to support them. So I think there'll be um, a, a pretty good I don't want to say explosion, but I think the faucet will at least be turned on for vaccine doses and accessibility um, over the over the month of March. That is incredibly encouraging and gives just a ton of hope 
you know, I know that we talk a lot about frontline healthcare workers, and we are so thankful for them. You and your teams have not had a break. Health departments across the United States have not had a break since March, you know, since all of this started. And now with vaccines, even more intense since April, I have a family member that's also works for the health department. And, you know, she's carried that burden just like you and your teams have where they've sacrificed time over the holidays. We didn't get to see them over Thanksgiving or at least even talk or Zoom with them. We didn't get to see them at Christmas. You know, they've just really taken on this burden with all of their passion just to ensure that our communities are safe. And first, I want to say thank you, just overwhelmingly thank you. And I really hope that um, with more places being able to give the vaccine, I hope that at least gives you all a little bit of a break to take at least a day for yourselves because you definitely deserve that. But saying that, you know, you've given us talking points, you've, you've guided us, you've um, educated us about the vaccine and the importance and, you know, one in 680, you know, as you said, in Tennessee about have um, died from COVID, you know, and looking at statistics with the vaccine, I mean, that was an incredible talking point that, you know, one and maybe million, millions, who knows, have not died, you know, so this is just such an important endeavor that you guys are leading. How can we help you? We feel so helpless in this when we're seeing you guys work so hard. How can we help you? How can your local healthcare workers, Health Trust, HCA, how can our teams help you guys with this initiative that your team has taken on? Well, first, thank you for for all the kind words and and yeah, this this has been a, a monumental task. And um, you know, people will say, oh, I can't imagine, you know, what what you all are dealing with. And and my response has become, you're right, um, because I could not imagine what um, we were dealing with. And you know, kind of each day that goes by, I couldn't have imagined what we're dealing with. And I think it is important to pause for a moment and recognize that you know we are two-thirds of the way to the number of deaths in the United States from this pandemic that we had in 1918 from that flu pandemic. This has been the deadliest infectious disease event that has occurred, mm-hmm. not just in America or North America, but you know, around the globe in over 100 years. And it's really important to, to kind of stop and appreciate that for a moment. And you know, I, I have teased sometimes that, you know, in public health, you always know where you stand because people are never happy with what you do. Um, and, um, and that, you know, it seems to, it seems to be really, really true now. And so I think my, my, the word that I go to a lot is grace. When things seem frustrating, you know, why isn't the vaccine out faster? Why are the lines so long? Why is it so hard to sign up? Why can't I figure out where to go? You know, we are responding to the worst infectious disease event in over 100 years and trying to figure it out as we go. And so I think, you know, maybe just taking a breath for a moment to understand the magnitude of this and, um, you know, for, for our state, not only contact tracing and and testing millions and millions and millions of times in the state, but now vaccinating probably twice, almost 7 million people um, as quickly as we can is, yeah. it is 
huge. And, um, you know, we didn't wake up one morning and have the size of the Department of Health double or quadruple. It, these are the right. same staff that uh, have all the other day jobs that they have to do at the Department of Health. So um, so I think, you know, some some grace in that, you know, the local press is often unkind and, and would like to sensationalize things. And the bottom line is that we have put almost a million doses in arms in less than eight weeks, and we have vaccinated over 600,000 people. Um, so we're almost 10% right now today of the people who live in Tennessee that have had at least one vaccine. And that's in less than eight weeks. That is a tremendous effort. Everyone is working um, harder than they have ever worked before. And so for our, our non-public health colleagues, we thank you for all that you're doing. And, and we, uh, we have your backs. And um, we really hope that, that you have ours, too, when, um, when folks are maybe critical of the process um, to understand how incredibly huge this has been and that you know, everyone is trying their, their very best to um, get vaccines in arms as quickly as we possibly can. Absolutely. That's an easy one. So if they start picking on you guys, they'll have to go through us first. Don't you worry about that one. Well, this has been just such a great um, hour or time just to talk with you. I've learned so much. Is there anything I didn't ask that you feel is important to share? Oh, so many things. Um, so, <laughs> so first off, um, I would say, you know, we, we have been um, really, really fortunate that flu didn't blow up this year. Um, we had minimal, Amen. I mean, never even got above threshold to call it even a flu uh, endemic this year. And, and thank God for that. But that doesn't mean that people don't still need to get flu shots. And it's only the middle of February and it is very, very much still flu season. We could still get some ugly rise in that. So um, just reminding people to get their flu vaccines. The, you know, one of the kind of unreported um, consequences of this pandemic is that children have not been vaccinated with their routine vaccines. And because of all of the other pandemic-related things that public health has had to do, we have really fallen behind in vaccinating kids that may not have um, private providers or, or may not have access to vaccines outside of the health department and the VFC program. And so we have to do a ton of catching up with these kids. Um, right now, there are tens of thousands of Tennessee kids that are in school that um, are not meeting the requirements for vaccination for school entry. And that's something that we really need to fix before um, school begins next year. It was sort of a perfect storm. Parents were afraid to bring their kids in. Health departments were having to test and contact trace and, and didn't have the ability to vaccinate as much. For a while, private practice was sort of shut down in March and April. And then the schools have been so overwhelmed with COVID-19 response of their own that they haven't had time to police whether or not immunization records are complete. And many schools began online. And so they weren't really required to have their immunization records presented to school um, in a lot of cases. So I just want to you know, flag that for everyone. Um, if you see kids in your practices, it's really, really important to be doing some reminder recall with those kids um, over the spring and summer to bring them in, especially the four five, six-year-olds who have missed MMR vaccines. We do not need a measles epidemic on top of this. And um, no, we, you know, we're, we get very concerned when we start to see, you know, 10, 15, 20 
30% declines in the kids getting MMR vaccines especially, but you know, also pertussis, varicella. We just got over a hepatitis A epidemic. We need to make sure that these kids are getting their routine vaccines and uh, really, really need your help in, in getting that done. You know, the domino effect from this, it's always shocking how, how many things are affected. We think about the elephant that's right in front of us, but I think we have some work to do in many different areas to make up for some lost time after, hopefully I can say after this pandemic, eventually, probably for a couple years to come. So that is a great reminder and we'll definitely help with that. We can we can work with some social media or those types of things just to really remind people of the importance of all vaccines and, you know, beyond just the COVID vaccine. And we're really excited about your participation in some webinars that we have coming in the future. So um, this is definitely not the last time we hope we get to spend time with you just because you're just such a great guest for us. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, there's lots more to talk about and, and, you know, all the things that we don't know that we don't know yet. So, um, you know, anytime that, uh, that we can do this and get information out, it's, it's a good day. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health Trust's Candid Conversations podcast. Please visit healthtrustpg.com forward slash the source forward slash candid dash conversations to listen to more episodes of our podcast.